Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. In recognition of International Women's Day, celebrated in early March, and a continuation of Black History Month, our guest on the podcast today is Dr. Joyce Hamilton Berry. Dr. Berry, a remarkable woman with many accomplishments in her life, is known as the first African-American female to earn a PhD at the University of Kentucky. She has been the first in many things. She started elementary school at age five. She graduated from high school in three years. She earned her PhD in psychology in three years after she earned her bachelor's and master's degrees. Dr. Berry was inducted into the University of Kentucky class of 2015 Hall of Distinguished Alumni in 2015. And I must say that she's coming to us today from outside of Washington, D.C. in Columbia, Maryland. And Dr. Barry, as a native of Lexington, it's very, very nice to have you on the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Let me just begin and uh, take you back to your childhood, to a Lexington of some time ago, and what do you remember about uh, growing up here in central Kentucky? My, my neighborhood, I grew up in the east end of Lexington. I lived on uh, 4th Street and went to Constitution School. The neighbors were very supportive and very involved. It's like they say it takes the village well, I had the village, and one, if I did something on the corner that they knew my mother and father would not approve of, by the time I got home, not only would they correct me, but by the time I got home, my parents would know what I was doing on the corner that I had no business doing. And so <laughs> it was like, I knew that there were a lot of eyes on me and that they were very concerned about my welfare. I remember... When the Lexington Herald leader had the colored news and notes, uh, they used to publish the honor roll for Dunbar. And I had made the honor roll that first grading period. Second grading period, I didn't make it because of my behavior or deportment, as they called it. I mean, I would talk, I, you know, I, I would sometimes not be the most studious student. One of the things was that I'd get through with my work and then I'd normally start a disturbance in the class. So it was like, <laughs> I didn't get an A in deportment. And no matter what your grades were academically, you had to have an A in deportment. As my father said, anyone can behave. <laughs> <laughs> so, it sounds like that uh, you, um, you did a lot of things early, uh, even when you were in Lexington, uh, getting... Uh, your your early degree, uh, your your elementary school education, and then entering high school uh, at an early age. Uh, what um, what drove you to do that? Was it just uh, natural intelligence? Did you study harder than uh, anyone else? Was it just something that uh, was driving you? Wait a minute, Anna. You know what I meant. Ah, 
Oh, those technical devices always get in the way. But you know what? We just go right on and don't pay any attention to those at all. You know, I, it happens to all I of had us. I turned it off. And then I said, well, maybe someone will call me. So, <laughs> okay, now it's off. Um, I started Catherine Rollins, who was the home economics teacher at Dunbar, had an early childhood program. Now I have to back up. My father started teaching me to read when I was two years old using the comic strips. And he was home on Sunday morning. And so when the newspaper came in, we would read the comic strip together. So he had started to teach me to read. Mrs. Rollins told my mother and father that she would like to put me in her early childhood program before uh, you were supposed to be four years old, at three years old, she said, I, I think she would be a positive factor. <laughs> that wasn't quite the case. I remember <laughs> she had a high school student that would walk me home and one day I convinced her to take me somewhere that I wasn't supposed to be. I told her that I was going to take piano lessons and she took me to the uh, family friend's house that had a piano. So at the end of the early childhood program, the Mrs. Wallace says she can't come back. She says she's too busy and she's into things. She said, I don't know what, you know, what you'll do. And so the kindergarten teacher lived across the street. And we only had one kindergarten for the, the black students in Lexington. And so she said, oh, I'll take her and, and I'll, you know, I'll get her under control. <laughs> well, one day she put me under the desk for something I was doing, and I just went to sleep. And when my father came to pick me up, she had forgotten that she had put me under the desk, and they thought I had walked off and was in the neighborhood. So at the end of the kindergarten year, um, well, the kindergarten teacher's name, I can't think of her name right now. But anyway, she told my mother and father said, she needs to go to the first grade, said she can't come back to kindergarten again. Said go over to Constitution and talk to Mr. Calder and see if she, he will let her enroll early. So I went over and I, all I can remember is his sitting at the desk and he asked me some questions and I guess I, I must have answered them correctly. He said, yes, she can enter the first grade. By the time I got to the second grade, the teacher asked my father if they could skip me to the third grade. He said, no, indeed. He said, she'll be graduating from high school with pablum running out of her mouth. He said, you have to figure out how to teach her. So after then, I you know, did the regular thing. But then in high school, I would go to summer school every summer because I enjoyed school. And I accumulated credits. Well, my parents, I think, realized that I was, I'd probably get in trouble if I stayed. Because for example, when I got the Distinguished Alumni Award, I was hooking class. I mean, I, no, there was, I, no, not when I got the, uh, that award. When yeah. they wrote a letter, uh, article in the uh, Lexington Herald Leader, they said, I bet this is a ceremony that she won't miss. <laughs> the day that I made the National Honor Society at Dunbar, 
I was hooking glass. <laughs> well, I, I went window shopping on Main Street, and I think my parents knew it was time for me to leave Lexington because the rate I was going, I was going to get in trouble. And so I kept telling them, no, I'm going to take trigonometry. I'm going to take physics. And I thought this would impress them, and they'd let me stay in school another year. And my mother finally said, what is the real reason you don't want to graduate from high school? I said, I want to be a cheerleader for another year. <laughs> she said, well, if you're a good cheerleader, you can be a cheerleader in college. I said, really? And she said, oh, yeah. So at that point, I decided I'd graduate from high school. And I did become a cheerleader at Hampton. And I Well, let me just let me just stop you there before we go on to Hampton. And I want you to uh, although the audience won't know, the listeners won't know that you're proudly wearing your Hampton University sweatshirt today, right? Yes. Yep, yep, you got that on. But before we get to Hampton, give me some, um, some remembrances of Lexington at that time. What, were the schools uh, still segregated? Um, was Dunbar, Dunbar was still a, a, an all-black uh, school? Mm -hmm. The schools yeah. were still uh, segregated. In fact, I had to walk by was it Lexington Junior High School that's at fourth and, and limestone I think um it, it's not that now but it's uh, there is a there is a school there okay. yeah I'd have to go by there to go to Dunbar and you know, uh -huh. that was all white Dunbar was uh for the colored children as they is that something you accepted or did you ever give it a second thought about why uh, I, I accepted it because my friends, all of the people I had gone to school with, I thought I turned this thing off. <laughs> I'll put it in the drawer and close the drawer. Maybe, yeah, I can't hear it. Um, I, uh, all of my friends that I had made when I was in Constitution, you know, they were going to Dunbar. So I was with my friends and I didn't resent or regret the fact that I couldn't go to Lexington Junior High School. I think that's what the name of it was. You know, my parents protected me a lot from the racism, the segregation, the discrimination. I can remember my mother used to say, we don't use public bathrooms. She said, because they're dirty and you can catch diseases. So you have to go to the bathroom before you leave. And mm. so I didn't see the signs that said colored and white for the bathrooms. If we were in Kresge's or Woolworth's and um, I would see the sandwiches pictured on the, the wall, I'd say, oh, I want one of those sandwiches. And my mother said, oh no, we'll go up to the barbershop. You can eat lunch with your father. Well, that was my happiest day because it's like I get to eat lunch with my father in one of the restaurants on Dewey Street and most people knew me as Joyce. I, I don't know whether they thought I was a busybody, but it's like they would always talk about how pretty I was, how nice I was. And so it was just wonderful to be on Dewey Street and, and where my father's barbershop was and get all of the attention. You know, I mean, it's like I could walk down the street and they say, that's Sam's da daughter, stop that cussing. <laughs> so, so, so Joyce, in when when your mother was saying you don't want that sandwich in in Kresge's, she was telling you without saying that that uh, that lunch counter 
was still segregated. It was an all white mm -hmm. lunch counter. And, uh, and that didn't have an impact on you. It might've had an impact on your mother. Of course, it might've had an impact on you later. Well, later it was like, that was just the way it was. And I accepted that that was okay because there were some very loving people in the community that I knew. In many ways, they encouraged me to achieve. Because even when I was working on the doctorate degree, occasionally they'd say, have you finished that degree yet? Or when are you going to finish that degree? And so I knew that they cared about my completing the doctorate, uh, that they had an investment in me. So it, it was okay for me to be the way I was, to be an African-American. Well, I've heard you tell the story uh, about uh, going to Hampton, and I want you to retell that because I don't think that was, first of all, how did you discover Hampton, uh, your interest there? And secondly, I think somebody in the family thought maybe you should go up the street eh, on the other side of town and go to the, the university, the University of Kentucky. Yeah, my, well... First off, my father said, he said, okay, now that you've decided you'll go to college, where do you want to go? And I said, Howard University. He said, there is no way I am going to let you be in Washington, D.C. at the age of 15. Because Sadie Yancey, who was the dean of women at Howard, knew my parents and she was from Lexington. And oh. they, she would come home for Christmas break or a spring break. And my father had a friend that would take her, the four of them, my mother and father, they would take them to dinner. And she would regale them with stories about the old men, the Cadillacs who would come by the campus and girls going in the boys' dorm. And so my <laughs> father just immediately said, no, there's no way you'll go to Washington, D.C. or Howard. He wanted me to go to Fisk. I just, I didn't want to go to Fisk because it was in Tennessee and I knew my father loved me so much that he'd probably be in Nashville once every month to see his, his girl. So I said, I want to go to Hampton. Well, I had two cousins who had finished graduated from Hampton. And so it was like, he thought about it for a while. And I remember now his comment when he made the decision, he said, Okay, you can go to that ag school. <laughs> Hampton had its own farm. They produced the food and the milk for our cafeteria. Uh, it was Hampton Institute at that time. And I realized, I said, he, my father was probably thinking if I had gone to Fisk with Mahari being across the street or very close to Fisk, that maybe I would have married a doctor. <laughs> but it's well, for a um, for a young fifteen-year-old uh, from Lexington, Kentucky, who maybe I'm just assuming that you hadn't been away from home a lot, that's a that's a long way away. Mm -hmm. Were you ever homesick? No, not really. Uh, I wasn't homesick. No? I, I I tell you, my father did something that was very interesting. They shielded me from riding on the colored train in the car. Because whenever we go to Cincinnati to visit with my aunt, he would drive us to Cincinnati. And uh, so when I was getting ready to go to Hampton, I remember he brought the Pullman Porter back. And he said, this is my daughter. She's going to Hampton. 
take care of her. And he shook his hand. I didn't know anything about glad handing at the time. My father must have given him a wonderful tip. Because <laughs> shortly after we pulled out of Lexington, and my mother had fixed me the shoebox with fried chicken and brownies in it, which were two of my favorites. And <laughs> he brought me a ham sandwich on a plate with the Coca-Cola with the green bottle and the real old Coca-Cola, the original. And it had a, and potato chips and it had a napkin over it because we couldn't go in the dining room on the train because I, you know, I was on mm. the color car. So I ate that. When I got to Ashland, Kentucky, the Pullman Porter came back and said, I understand you, the daughter of a friend of, he said, I will take care of you from here to Charlottesville. Next thing I knew, I had uh, ice cream sundae and cookies that he brought back <laughs> to me. So it was really nice. I never ate chicken and the brownies that my mother had put in the shoebox for me. And when I got to Richmond, the Pullman Porter came back and said, I understand you're the daughter of uh, a friend of, I, he said, I don't have to take care of you from Richmond to Hampton because everybody on this train is going to Hampton. Oh, oh okay. So that was, yeah. was fine. But that was my experience with the Pullman Porter and the color car. You, and you continued your, your cheerleading activities? I made the cheerleading squad the first week that I was there. They um, had some of the freshman girls to go out. And when I made the cheering squad, I said, well, this is it. I'm ready to stay because I had said if I didn't make the cheering squad, I'd probably go home. Not because I was only sick, it was because I wanted to be a cheerleader. Uh, so I made the cheering squad and I cheered every game except the homecoming game of my senior year. I decided I wanted to dress up like the other students and take off that funny looking uniform we used to wear. You had a good uh, experience at Hampton? Very good experience at Hampton. Made friends that I still have now. Um, I went into the sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority, and four of my line sisters live in this area so we can continue our relationship even though we've been out of Hampton for many years. Mm -hmm. And so... Um... Your, your master's degree came from what institution? I got my master's degree at the University of Kentucky. And the interesting thing when you said, and many people say that because this is the way UK documents it, that I got my master's in 67 and got my doctorate in 70. Well, that wasn't true. I got my, I came to the University of Kentucky in 62 and I got a master's in guidance and counseling and I finished, that was a one year program. So I was through that June and they offered me the fellowship to the Southern Education Association Foundation to study for the doctorate. Well, I didn't pay for the $25 for the master's degree because I didn't see that as being important. You know, I had completed the requirements for it. Why was I going to give them $25 for something to put on the wall when it didn't mean that much to me to have this, you know, that I have a degree in? And so yeah. I didn't pay for my master's, but I knew I had completed. I started the doctorate. And when I had 
passed the qualifying and they were fixing my records, you know, the report up to send over to the uh, administrative office. They said, now you got your master's when? I said, I completed the requirements in 63. They said, what do you mean by completing your requirements? I said, I had all the hours and everything I needed to get the master's. I said, but I haven't paid for it. And they said, why haven't you paid for it? I said, nobody asked to see the degree. And I don't <laughs> need it sitting on the wall. I said, I'd, um, I could take that $25 and buy my kids something. And rather than pay for a piece of paper to put on the wall, I said, people only ask for your transcript. Well, you're great. And they were sitting yeah. there looking. I don't think they'd ever heard anything like that before. They said, you know, she's right. Yeah. <laughs> but most people want their degree. And so they told yeah. me, you'd better go over there and pay for that master's. Because if not, all this information that we're getting ready to send to them about your qualifying for the doctorate degree, he said, they'll put all those hours on your master's. So I was encouraged to go over there and give them the $25 to pay for the master's degree. Tell me a little bit about uh, UK at that time. I think, uh, I don't know the exact date, but uh, uh, Lyman Johnson had already uh, gone through uh, struggle and strife and, and uh, probably much, much worse than that to, to be entered uh, at the University of Kentucky as the first black student. Um, when, and that wasn't that long uh, before you arrived there. I, I think that was, was that sometime in the 50s maybe or something like that? It was, was a long time coming. I'm not exactly sure of the date. We'll both have to maybe look that up. But the question it's been is 50 years because they did a publication about. So that would actually that would be that would be uh, uh, 50 would be somewhere around the early 70s. So really, uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll check that out. Uh, somebody that's listening will will correct me on that, I'm sure. But we'll we'll do our research on that. But he he had been there. And, and then uh, but by the time you got in the doctoral program, uh, how many African-Americans were there, not just in your doctoral program, but campus-wide? I really don't have an idea. It wasn't that many. When I was doing the master's, I rarely saw an African-American in any of my classes. I do remember a class that Dr. Karst taught that there was another girl, African-American girl in that class. But there weren't that many. And frequently, I was the only African-American in most of my classes. Um, and that was okay with me. I mean, it, it didn't upset me. I had gotten to the place I was used to being the only one in the, the group, group or in the audience. Well, we've got some stories that I want you to tell about uh, you being at UK. I think there were uh, maybe a professor or two that you... Um, that you learned to get along with, but uh, it might have been, uh, it was probably tougher on them than it was you, but we'll, we're going to take a pause uh, and hear from our underwriter Spalding University, and then we'll be back with, with Dr. Joyce Hamilton Berry in just a moment. Spalding University's affordable, nationally distinguished low residency MFA in writing offers excellent instruction in a compassionate, supportive community. Focus on your own area of concentration 
explore across genres and examine the interrelatedness of the arts. During one-on-one -on -one independent study, you'll write prolifically and receive expert feedback from your faculty mentor, developing the discipline to keep writing for life. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, and writing for TV, screen, and stage. Learn more at spalding.edu slash schoolofwriting or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. All right, Dr. Barry, you're in your doctoral program. You're uh, steeped in all of this knowledge as, uh, when did you realize, or did it come later that you were going to be the first female, the first African-American female to be awarded a PhD at the University of Kentucky? I didn't know that until graduation. That was not a concern of mine. I did know that my 12th grade English teacher at Dunbar High School was the first African-American male to get a doctorate degree. That was John Smith. And I can remember being very proud when I heard that. I said, you know, because he was my 12th grade English teacher. I had written my first term paper, research paper, uh, with uh, Dr. Smith, as he was known at that time. When, I, when he was mine, it was my teacher, it was Mr. Smith. What was it like? Uh, how did I... You know, well, I had some interesting experiences with some of my uh, instructors. Um, there was Joseph C. Muldoon, who taught juvenile delinquency. And he had a graduate assistant who uh, had red hair. I remember very bright red hair. And he would make derogatory statements about the nation of Islam, about them selling bean pies and wearing suits, which really irritated me. And he would also make negative comments about black. Well, the Monday after the four little girls in Birmingham had been killed in the bombing of the church in Birmingham, Alabama, he made a negative statement about black people and I went off. Now there were about four other black students in that class and they just started sliding down in their seats because they were so embarrassed when I told him, I said, you know what? We are sick and tired of people like you saying negative things about African-Americans. And I said, you ridiculed the nation of Islam when they're teaching people values that might've come from a different background. And I said, and he wanted to say that they had their newspaper. I said, the next time you want a Muhammad speak, you can go down to Second and Dewey Street to the newsstand. I said, or if you're afraid to go in there, I'll bring you a paper. Well, I noticed after then, I knew I had an A average in the class. And I noticed that he wasn't passing, returning papers. I said, okay, he's probably going to give me a lower grade than I deserve. And sure enough, he did. When the grades came in, I got a B. I went to his office and there was a grad student. And I said, uh, I came to pick up my uh, papers from Joseph Muldoon's uh, class, juvenile delinquency. He said, did, you, did they say you could have them? I said, he didn't say I couldn't. I said, and they're my papers. And so he just went through the file cabinet, pulled out the folder and gave it to me. And then I went to the chairman of the sociology department 
and told him that I did not get the grade that I deserved. And I showed him these papers. And he made one of the statements that people think are a compliment, but we as African-Americans think it's an insult. Oh, you write so well. Hmm. I said, yeah. Where did you go to school? I said, I graduated from Dunbar High School right here in Lexington. You finished uh, Dunbar and you know about K. Moo? I said, yes. That was one of the philosophers that we studied in the class. He said, well, this is just wonderful. And then I told him that I had the fellowship to study for the doctorate degree. So he then called the um, Maldu up and said, you know, I have Joyce Berry here and she's a SEAF fellow and she's questioning her grade. I'd like for you to meet, meet with her. Well, the day of our meeting, I had sat there and I had sat there for the, the proverbial 15 minutes. And I got up and I said, I'm here to meet with Joseph Muldoon. And the lady said, are you Joyce Barry? And I said, yes. She said, he was here yesterday and he left a note for you. And the note said, your grade did add up to an A and it has been changed accordingly. He didn't have any records to look at because I had all of them. I had gotten them from his office. And that's a battle that I fought to get my grade changed. There was Jesse Harris, who was the chairman of the psych department. All during the time that I was in the doctoral program, I would see black men who were going to get a degree in psychology end up coming to the College of Education and taking um, guidance and counseling or educational counseling. And I'd, I asked one of them one time, what happened? Why, why did you give up your major in psychology? And he said, well, you know, Dr. Uh, Harris has said that um, it's ludicrous for, no, that no black would get a degree in psychology while he was chairman because it was ludicrous to think that black people were mentally healthy. You know, that didn't bother me. I, I've heard a lot of people say a lot of things that weren't true about us, but I decided that I would take the everything that I needed in the psychology curriculum. And he taught one course that I had to have. And um, I registered for the class. It was my last semester. I knew I had all the hours that I wanted. And I was the only fly in the buttermilk. That's the expression we use for being the only black in the class. And there were probably about 30 students sitting there. Some of them I'd never seen, but a lot of them I had because I'd have classes with them. So when he started off, he said, uh, when I call your name, stay here and raise your hand. Well, he called the first three names and the fourth name was Joyce Berry. And he called and I said, here and raise my hand. And he asked me, you know, have you taken the prerequisites for this class? I said, yes. He said, what are they? And I said, projective techniques and individual testing, intelligence testing. He said, where did you take it? And I said, well, I flew under the radar. He didn't even know I was there. I said, in your department, under Dr. Demick and Dr. Esty. He slammed the roll book shut walked out of the room and all of us were sitting looking and they were wondering where he was. And I said, I know what he's going to do. He's going down to the office. He's going to check my name out to see if I told the truth. 
Well, the next class, we only had about 14 students. I said, the other students, unfortunately, those that had not taken the prerequisites, I guess they thought you really had to do it because he had let the first three go. He didn't ask them that question. <laughs> they didn't drop ass. And so we had the small <laughs> class. And he did some things that were not fair, but it didn't make any difference. I knew he wasn't going to stop me from getting my degree. And the first test that he gave, he said, um, he passed out the papers and a girl that I had had several classes with through the years, she said, Joyce, can I see your test paper? And I said, yeah, and I gave it to her. And she was looking at it and she said, oh, I didn't put that in there. Oh, I forgot that. And then she said, but my grade is higher than yours. And I said, that's the color factor. And she said, what do you mean by that? I said, because I'm black, I won't get the grade I deserve. She said, well, you should do something about that. I said, really? What can I do? He's the chairman of the department and management supports their own. I said, so they're not going to get rid of me. And I said, uh, he won't fail me. And I said, once I get my degree, and this is not a nice statement, my mother would tell me, you did not have to say that. I said, he can kiss my black ass <laughs> once I get my degree. And she said, oh, I didn't mean to upset you. I said, you did not upset me. I said, those are just the facts. Well, one day he told a joke about an ignorant Negro woman whose husband was a paranoid stiff and that he was never going to get better. And that she was saying to him, oh, God will take care of him. God will make everything okay. He said, such an ignorant woman. And the rest of the class laughed. I didn't laugh. So he said, oh, Miss Barry, you didn't think that was funny? And I said, no. And then there was Dr. Petty who taught abnormal psych. He had a history or a tradition as I found out that the student who got, the students who would make the top four grades on his test, he would call their names. And he also said, you, get, you take four tests in this class if you get A's on the first three, um, you don't have to take the final exam. So the first test, when he passed it out, he uh, named number four, who was Dan Issel, who played, ended up, he was one of the basketball players. And he called two other men, they were also basketball players. And then he said, Joyce Berry, and I stood up. And he said, I said, Joyce Berry. And I said, I am Joyce Berry. And he looked at me and it was like, I could see the color draining out of his face. <laughs> and I said, okay. The second test, at that point, I knew that he had grad assistants who graded his playbook because he called off number four, number three, number two, number one, Joyce Berry, and I stood up. He didn't do that for the third test. He didn't call names. And so after the class, the students would come up and say, did you get the highest score this time? I said, I don't know. I said, but I did get 100 plus the 10 point bonus. And they said, do you realize you've destroyed a tradition at your first in Kentucky? I said, probably so. Well, I could sometimes be a little smart. Uh, I would do things that were just right over the line. That's the, that's the reason I didn't get an A in citizenship when I was in the seventh grade. He, um, he had, uh, he, oh, the day of the final, 
I went in and I came, I purposely came late because all the other students knew that I had made A's. And so when I came in, he said, oh, you don't have to take the exam. I said, I know, but I didn't have anything else to do today. And I thought I'd come and take the final. And so I sat down, I answered the questions. And then when I got up, I came to the desk, he was sitting by the door and I said, uh, Dr. Petty, I really enjoyed your class. And then I took the final that I had written on and tore it up and threw it in the trash I said, and I left. That was a smart uh, action, but I would sometimes do that. That was a disrespect, <laughs> but I would sometimes do those things. I think that that was, the most that I had, I mean, that would, oh, I remember one time for uh, group psychology, the instructor said, do you know why so many black people die in Arkansas? And he said, because they have black asphalt highways. And of course, the class thought that was funny. I didn't find that funny. But most of the things I just ignored, you know, it, it was their weakness and their problem. Because Dr. Barry, you know, I, I, uh began our conversation this afternoon by honoring uh, all women uh, uh, with International Women's Day and uh, certainly made reference to Black History Month and the celebration that that most uh, many think that should be celebrated every day, not just during the month of of February. You've seen uh, a lot of change. Um, You've seen a lot of... um, tragedy over the years. You've seen, I'm sure, some, some progress too. Give me just some, some lasting impressions and thoughts about uh, where you think we are as a society and how far we need to go. This is a, a crucial time in the uh, life of, of uh, our democracy. Uh, it seems like when we take uh, one step forward, we're taking 10 steps back and um, We've gone through a a real horrific time uh, in the last four years. Uh, A lot of people are doubtful whether we can can improve. What are are your general thoughts uh, and philosophy about where you think we are as a a people, as Black and White and Asian and Native America, uh, as people in the United States? I don't see much progress, and I don't anticipate that things will get as good as we'd like for them to. There will be some improvement, but not that much. In 1954, when the Supreme Court gave the ruling on Brown versus the Board of Education, that separate was not equal. That was in 54. When I taught school, and I taught in the Lexington school system, in fact, I taught at Dunbar, where I had graduated, the schools were still segregated. And that was in 60, I finished Hampton in 58, I taught at Dunbar in 59. They still had segregated schools, even though Brown versus Board of Education Mm -hmm. had happened before then. You know, when my son was murdered by a Pennsylvania state trooper, he, uh, he was unarmed, a graduate in electrical engineering from Tuskegee Institute. He was a kid who believed 
that every people did what they were supposed to do in spite of the fact that I would let him know, no, that's not true. Sometimes we might be watching a news show and they would say something about a black man had a gun on him. Or, and I said, they, I would make a comment, oh, they probably put the gun on him or they probably put the drugs on him. And he used to say, Mom, don't just say things like that. He said, uh, people do what they're supposed to do. And I said, no, that, that's, that's not true, Daryl. But he believed that. Um, he was on his way to Cincinnati. He had two dogs, two Rottweilers. He bred Rott Rottweilers. And he would sell the pups for money. Um, I think he had a Mercedes station wagon. It was an old one, but most people can't tell the year of uh, Mercedes. He was, he had gone through Breezewood, which is where you can enter the Pennsylvania Turnpike. And I had told him not to drive the Pennsylvania Turnpike because there's another road, uh, the free, Capitol Freeway that goes through Western Maryland, which is a beautiful road, but it doesn't have a lot of rest areas. But I had told him to go that way. That part of Pennsylvania is known for being very prejudiced and, uh, and that the policemen harass African-Americans. I think he was on the Pennsylvania Turnpike because he had rest areas where he could stop with his dogs. Anyway, I don't know what he did. There was a truck driver who I thought it was very interesting. He drove an 18 wheeler. He did not have a CDL license, which you need by law to drive those big trucks. He had 11 traffic violations that infractions that Pennsylvania had charged him with, even accumulated five shortly after Daryl's death. But he gave some report to um, the police that Daryl was acting erratic or something. But, but I know he had an accident in his car. Anyway, when the police pulled up, he shot my unarmed son three times, which was not necessary that he shoot him, that he shoot him, shoot him three times. You didn't have to shoot him at all. That was at 8.30 in the evening. They did, by 4.30 in the morning, they had not called me but they called his girlfriend in Cincinnati and told her, oh, when she asked them, they asked her some questions and she answered them. And then she said, well, what happened? They said, oh, you're not next of kin. So we can't tell you. And she said, well, did you call his mother? And they said, oh no, we can't find her telephone number. Now this was in 2012. I know that they had my, could have gotten my telephone number but they didn't. And she called me about 1.30 in the morning, 3.30 in the morning and left this message that something had happened to Daryl, but she didn't know. And uh, I called her back. I said, Loretta, what are you talking about? And she said, I don't know, but something happened to Daryl. And they said, they can't find your telephone number. And she said, and they haven't changed your number. I said, no, they haven't changed the number. I, and I was in such shock that I said, call, do you have their telephone number? And she said, yeah, because they had called the, the, the Cincinnati police and asked them to go by and get her to call them so she could answer some questions. Now, if they could do that with a girlfriend, yeah. I know darn well they had my telephone number. 
I said, tell them to call me. And about 4.30 in the morning, I realized they haven't called me. So I called them and he said, I called her and I said, what happened? She said, I told them they didn't call you. And I said, no. So I, I said, give me the number. And I called, oh, we, we were just getting ready to call you. And I was thinking, yeah, I bet. They said, uh, we've had the Pennsylvania Turnpike closed for seven hours because of the accident that your son had. Well, that was a lie because Oh, they also said that my son's dogs had attacked the, the state trooper. This is unbelievable. <laughs> uh, um, I lost, I lost. Yeah, yeah the, the, the dogs had attacked the state yeah. trooper. And, and is that the reason he fired? The dogs weren't out of the car. He lied about that. And they, uh, oh, he said Daryl beat him in the head with, a flashlight. Well, when I wrote a letter to the Department of Justice and they supposedly investigated like they investigate all the other and came out that the policeman did not use excessive force. If shooting a, a man three times that's unarmed, if that isn't um, excessive force, I don't know what is. And I remember when I would read, you know, people had comments online um, dogs attack policemen, policeman shoots man, and one of them said the man must have been black. And I said, yeah, that's when it started to hit me. One of his classmates from Tuskegee who lived in Wilmington, Delaware, and had grown up, he called me the next morning and he said, Dr. Berry, he said, I know that Daryl thought when the police were coming that they were coming to help me. He said he always believed in people. And I said, yeah, he probably did. And I said, and I wonder what his thoughts were when the bullet hit, the third bullet hit him. The way I found out that the dogs weren't out of the car is that the man who was assigned to pick the dogs up from um, and take them to the rescue place, he called me on the phone and he said, uh, I don't know why they didn't call me at 8.30 when they called, uh, killed your son, when your son had his accident. He said, uh, they didn't call me until 11 o'clock. He said, I got there at 11.20 something. He said, when I pulled up, I saw the state trooper opening the back of your son's car. And he said, the male dog bolted out in the traffic. See, that's where the lies, where I hear the lies. And the dog was hit. He said, the trooper was getting ready to shoot him. He said, but I told him, no, no, no. I'll take him to a veterinarian and we'll see what can happen. He said, it took us about 20 minutes to get the female dog to get out of the back of the car. So the dogs weren't out of the car and the dogs could not have attacked that policeman and then gotten back in the car. Well, I wrote a letter to the Justice Department. They agreed to investigate it. And of course, by the time I saw Michael Brown in the streets in Missouri, Eric Gardner, who the policeman executed uh, a chokehold on, I knew at that point, I probably was not going to get what I should have gotten and that the policeman should have been punished for that. And I had, when I was at the morticians, I remember they had a retired colonel that worked there and he said, you don't need to write any letters to anybody. Nothing's going to happen. They, they're not going to do anything to it. I said, oh, no. 
we have a black president, we have a black attorney general, and things are changing. He said, no, they haven't really changed. So that gets back to your initial question. No, and when I hear people say now, look at, at Floyd, look at the investigations, and, I, and probably the cop will be found not guilty in Minnesota when the trial starts for the man who put his knee on George Floyd's mm-hmm. neck. And he even looked at the camera smiling while he had his knee on his neck. I realized at that point, it's not much progress. It's another form of lynching to me, the killing of black men. And it's done so frequently to see them, see them put a bag over a man's head who's mentally ill. You know, it's really cruel, but Someone told me that the original policemen were members of the Ku Klux Klan and they became policemen so they could uh, maintain the black codes and the black codes were that we couldn't do much uh, without approval from white people or they'd have to sanction it for it. That, no, it hasn't gotten better. Well, Dr. Barry, uh, I appreciate you sharing your story uh, so much with with us and with our listeners. You've um, you're delightful to talk with. You you've had uh, you've had joy in your life uh, in your early life, and you've also uh, dealt with tragedy. Um, and uh, our hearts go out to you for that. But we thank you so much, and uh, we hope that some of your your uh, friends uh, here in Lexington. Uh, Central Kentucky, all over the world. This is worldwide podcast. Ah. Uh, we'll uh, hear this and catch up with you. We'll uh, we'll let you know when this is going to be on, and we appreciate your time uh, today. And uh, hope to meet you in person someday. Oh, I plan to come to the next distinguished alumni um, banquet when they have it. I don't know whether they're going to. Evidently, they're not going to have it this year because they had said they were going to have it in April twenty one, and I haven't heard anything. Plus, I still have family there. So sometimes I drive down uh, and I'll make sure that I get in touch with you. Good, good. That's great. We would love to, to visit with you. And thank you so much. You're welcome. And thank you for inviting me to share my story. I hope people get some insight into what's going on in this country and gain some knowledge. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.